Good morning. Consider with me a moment here. You're experiencing stomach problems. Who would you go see? Would you go see a neurologist? Of course not. It's not what he does. Would you go to an optometrist for a back problem? No. We recognize that these problems are outside those doctors' scope of practice. That's not what they do. If we wanted help with, this, with these problems, we would go to a doctor who has the skill and the ability and the knowledge to fix the problem. Last week, we saw in, in the first part of Mark 2 how the scribes confronted Jesus over him claiming his power to, claiming the authority and the power to forgive sin. Today, we see the scribes confront Jesus over who he associates with. Essentially, not only over his power to forgive sin, but over who he forgives. Today, we see the second of five consecutive controversies through the first part of the book of Mark that Jesus has had with the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Over the next few weeks, we see how these successive confrontations build on each other, leading the Pharisees to decide that Jesus must die. Over the last few weeks, we've also seen a progression in Jesus' healing and forgiving. Initially, he was preaching and healing many. We see the crowds coming, drawing, drawn to Jesus by his power to heal. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen a change in the tone of the text. With the leper, the tone changes from the sick saying, heal me, to the sick saying, cleanse me. Last week, we saw Jesus' healing of the paralytic as simply a validation of his power to forgive, which became the focus of the entire episode. We see Jesus as a doctor initially healing, but the focus of his doctoring in the text changes. We also see, the, we also see how sick is used changing from referring to someone's physical infirmity to spiritual infirmity. We see the focus of the text move from Jesus as a doctor of the body to Jesus as doctor of the soul. Today, we have to consider the scope of the great physician's practice. You know, this text today is often the text where we, where we get to see Jesus in it, how we refer to him as the great physician. We have to consider the scope of his practice and his method to know with whom and how to share the gospel. If we're to emulate Christ as we're called to do, then his focus must become our focus. Effectively sharing the gospel means that we have to shed any preconceived notion about who is beyond saving and about who is worthy of saving. So as we begin to work through the text today, let's start with the text. We'll be in Mark chapter 2, 
verses 13 through 17 today. He went out from beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what do we see about his method? Really, that's where the text starts off. At first, we see that Jesus went out. In verse 13, it starts off, it says, He went out again beside the sea. And he passed by, in verse 14, as he passed by, as he passed by Levi. He went out to where the sick were gathered. He went out to where the people were. He didn't hide himself away or expect that, that the sick or sinners would find him on their own. The message of repentance, as we saw at the very beginning in Mark 1, where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That message was of such significance and such urgency. The kingdom of God is at hand, not it's coming in a little bit, You've got time, don't worry about it. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's urgency. He goes out and preaches the gospel. We also see that he teaches. He teaches the sick about their condition. Again, we go back in Mark 1 that the overarching theme of the entire, he went out proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. If the sinner isn't a sinner, of what need is repentance? If there's not something to turn away from, why repent? He's teaching about the gospel, teaching about repentance. Turn away from your sin. But he doesn't just say turn away. He gives them the cure. Believe in the gospel. The only thing that can save. And it was intentional. He went out with the intention of bringing the gospel. We don't see that he goes out and tells them how awful they are and how good he is and you're terrible. Repent, believe, be well. And we can contrast this with what we see in other parts of the gospel where the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we see that the reference to the tax collector will come back into the text today. But we're 
where Jesus is preaching, is teaching the example of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee and the teachers of the law of the day, it was about their cleanliness and everyone else's awfulness. The Pharisee said to God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, the extortioner, the unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector. It's not about Jesus doesn't go out without, with the intention of separating himself from everybody else. Look how good I am. Look how awful you are. He brings with him the gospel of repentance. Repent and believe in the gospel. But it doesn't really end there. Because in verse 14, we also see that as he goes out and he teaches and he passes by, that he also looks over at Levi in his tax booth and says, follow me. He's not content to just leave Levi there in his tax booth. His going out, his teaching, commands a response. It's not a command for which Levi could remain neutral. Follow me is a command that's you either follow or you don't. There's no real middle ground. We also see in the text that the call to follow Jesus cannot be anything other than a full life commitment. Consider Levi, the tax collector. He was, as the text says, he was a Roman tax collector. And that he was in his post Collecting taxes, he left his post. We're not told in the text he waited. We're not told that oh, when I get done, I'll, I'll come and follow you. We're told he rose and followed him. By abandoning his post, Levi guaranteed he would never work for Rome again. He abandoned his loyalty to Rome. However, he was also a tax collector. In the text, we see that the phrase is repeated, sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors and sinners. We're meant to understand that Levi's not just a sinner. He's a special kind of horrible. He's a tax collector. You know, by the time of Christ, you know, first century Judea, and even well before then, the phrase tax collector was universally understood to be an insult of the highest order. Throughout the Gospels, the term tax collector is frequently linked with sinners, heathens, prostitutes, extortioners, imposters, and adulterers. We even see in, elsewhere in the Gospels that the description is taken so far we saw in Mark 18 earlier today where it's talking about where we get church the idea of church discipline from. That if an offending Christian refuses to heed the local con congregation, he's, he's putting himself outside the religious community, joining the same class of people as Gentiles and tax collectors. This is certainly dubious company. We're given the idea that to be a tax collector 
was of a most detestable career. Because Levi had sided, a Jew, had sided against Rome, against his own people, he was viewed as a traitor who would never be accepted by the Jews. And Rome, because he abandoned his post, would never accept him back. In contrast, we see Simon, Andrew, James, and John at the beginning of Mark. They, could always, they were fishermen and they could always return to fishing. And in fact, we see this in the Gospel of John after the resurrection. When Jesus appeared to them, they were out fishing. They could always go back. To what could Levi return? Even with the skills that he would have undoubtedly had as a tax collector, who would have him? By following Christ, he had completely bound himself to Christ. No one else would have him. So we see that Jesus goes out, he teaches, and he calls. Is he doing this to everyone? Who's his target? Is he only going to a specific person? Is this all about just Levi? He goes out. He teaches Levi, he calls Levi, and that's it. What's the scope of the great physician's practice? We see in the text later on, the scribes of the Pharisees show back up. These are the devout. They complain, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice, they said this to his disciples. But Jesus inevitably heard what they had said. We don't know how, but eventually word got to Jesus. The scribes are complaining about who you're spending time with. These were the learned teachers and transcribers of the law and the other rabbinical writings. These are, ones, these are the ones who were the devout. These were the ones who should have been absolutely overjoyed that someone had finally come who could make the sick well and the sinner clean. We already saw in the previous section of Mark 2 that Jesus had claimed, not only had he claimed, but he had proven his authority to forgive sin. We've seen in previous texts that he had healed. Surely they should have been overjoyed. They, better than anybody, knew that being, being a sinner and being unclean would have put someone outside of the community. But instead, they respond with judgment and disbelief. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Betraying their sense of moral and spiritual authority and that's really their focus. He doesn't care that he's eating, doesn't care that he's gone into somebody's house. The text particular shows that they particularly care with whom he's associating. The sinners and the detestable of society. The grand irony is that in their failure in their sense of moral and, superior, moral and spiritual authority, that they failed to obey the commandment that it's given in, in the book of Leviticus that they would have well known 
where the law of Moses commands, you shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Their failure to do this betrays their own sinfulness, but in the hardness of their hearts, they didn't see their own sin. Because of their refusal to see their sin, rather than receiving the treatment from the great physician, they would be judged by the higher standard that they themselves, they themselves espoused. We also see that Jesus addresses the sinners. These were the unclean the people who had broken the Mosaic law, who were outside the congregation. They were unclean. They were sinners. They had broken the law. There is an inherent assumption in the text that by Jesus calling them and them responding, because notice that this text, that this particular text today, 13 through 17, is conspicuously devoid of any miracles or healing. Previous texts, in almost all of the, pre- the text of Mark thus far, in all the sections, there's some type of miracle, some type of healing, some type of making clean. This particular text is devoid of that. So while they may have followed him initially because of the miracles, this text doesn't say that's why they followed him. That by them responding to Jesus' call, they knew they were sinners. They went out to where the sinners were, or Jesus went out to where the sinners were, made himself accessible, and they responded. In the call to repent, Jesus did not go out to fellowship with sinners in their sinfulness. He didn't spread a message of God loves you just as you are. He spread a message of repentance. Rather than being content to leave sinners in their sinfulness, he called them to turn from their sin. And he made it abundantly clear that he did not come to call the righteous, who he also compares to the well, when he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Compared to the sinners, what the scribes failed to realize is that they too were sinners. They didn't heed the words of the psalmist as if if we were to fall into the trap of it being revealed in the New Testament that everyone's a sinner, no one's righteous. They had the words of the psalmist that Paul quotes later in Romans that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand who seek after God, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Whereas the Pharisees failed to real, the scribes failed to realize this, the sinners certainly did. But we also see that Jesus addresses the detestable, the tax collector. 
to understand why, why this would have been, why Jesus associating with, with the tax collector would have been so despised, would have raised the ire of the scribes. We have to consider the tax collection system of the day. The Roman system of tax collection was pretty much one of tax farming. A Roman equestrian or some, some local overlord would be responsible for seeing that the taxes were collected and given to Rome. Rome required so much to be given in tax from every particular province, and that person had to see that the taxes got there. Now, they would in turn hire locals to collect the taxes under the assumption that the locals, one, would know the local practices and how the locals tried to hide income and property, but two, under the assumption that they will be greedy enough that they would be willing to betray their own countrymen. The tax, the tax collectors would often collect far more than what was owed to Rome, and they would keep the extra to line their own pockets. They were generally considered dishonorable, traitors, and men with absolutely no scruples. They were viewed as deceiving their own countrymen in order to send money to Rome that would be used to support Roman idolatry at the, at the, expense, of the, at the expense of the Jews. They had betrayed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in order to support the false gods of Rome. They were regarded as having abandoned the covenant and were worthy only of destruction. Imagine, if you will, for a moment, you file your taxes. We're in that time of year where people are working on their taxes. Maybe some have filed, some are getting ready to file. But rather than send your taxes to the government directly, you have to go to your local IRS agent who will charge you whatever he would like, even though you know that this is more than what you owe. Say that you calculate you owe $5,000 in taxes a year. Surprise, the IRS agent demands $15,000. But what can you do? If you don't pay the tax collector what he's demanding, he'll report you to the authorities for failing to pay. Oh, and by the way, the IRS agent that you have to go to is your brother, who's willing to use every knowledge that he has about you in order to ensure that he squeezes every penny out of you that he wants. What would you think of such a person? This is the type of man that Jesus called to follow him. So maybe we can understand why the scribes were a bit taken aback. Why are you associating with this man? tax collectors were considered absolutely beyond saving. But here, in contrast, we see that not only did Jesus call a tax collector to follow him, he went to a tax collector's home and ate not just with Levi, but also with other tax collectors and sinners. And if that weren't bad enough, not only did he go to their home, but he reclined and accepted hospitality from them. This level of association is what arouses the protest of the scribes. 
we have writings and teachings from the rabbis of the day, and one of them has gone so far as to teach, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him to Torah. How backward is this? You're so wicked, we will not even bring you the Torah, which we believe that in following you can be made clean before God. In essence, what they wanted was that these men would be condemned and the earth be rid of them as soon as possible. Consequently, their logic was that if Jesus eats and fellowships with sinners and tax collectors and takes tax collectors for his disciples, then he himself must be a sinner and detestable. But what they didn't understand was what, that when the sinner and the tax collector encountered Jesus, one of two things would happen. Either the sinner would walk away condemned to hell by his own unbelief, or they would be convicted to repentance and cleansed. But what would not happen, what could never happen, is that Jesus would become anything less than holy. Where the scribes were, con where the scribes were concerned only with their own cleanliness, Jesus was supremely concerned with other sinfulness. So we get to Jesus' response. He responds to the righteous when he hears of their complaint, why do you eat with sinners and tax collectors? His response is, just as the well have no need of a doctor, to the righteous, he says, the righteous have no need of a savior. That word, have need of, can have an extended meaning of to have business of or to have use for. That those who are righteous, or even consider themselves righteous as the scribes did, would have no need of a doctor. They have no use for a doctor. Just as the well see no need for a physician, those who see themselves as righteous would have no need for a savior. The sad irony is that those who saw themselves as righteous did not heed the word of the psalmist that said, there is none who does good, not even one. And they were just as much sinners and tax, and the tax, they were just as much sinners as the tax collectors that they condemned. To the sinner, by contrast, Jesus says that just as the sick have need of a doctor, so the sinner has need of a savior. As a doctor comes to bring healing to the sick, here we come to it. So Jesus came to bring restoration to the sinner. Through the call of repent and believe in the gospel, the sinner can be brought into fellowship with the Savior. What an assurance this must be that those once separated by the law, a law that could serve only to condemn and not to save, as we're told in Romans, that those who were unclean and cast out of the fellowship, that those who could never shed enough blood of sacrifice to become holy. What a message of hope this has to be to those who are crushed under the sheer tonnage of their own sin. What a balm Jesus was offering. While the teachers of the law would not even associate with them, not even to bring them a Torah, Jesus associates with them to bring them salvation. And then to the tax collector. Notice in Jesus' response 
to the scribes, Jesus doesn't mention the tax collector. The omission of the tax collector is both striking and telling. On its face, it might seem that Jesus is excluding the tax collector from his grace because surely the scribes separated it out as sinners and tax collectors, but Jesus is only talking about sinners. Surely he's excluding the tax collector. However, remember in, 14, in verse 14 when he called Levi that it was a tax collector that he had called to abandon his post and to follow him. So surely Le Jesus is not telling Levi, come follow me now, but I will not save you. In fact, quite the opposite. What did the tax collector do that the sinner didn't? The tax collector committed usury, betrayal, deceit, extortion, and idolatry, if only passively. All violations of the law of Moses, for which there were sacrifices and repentance required in order to be restored. We see that the designation of a tax collector as someone of particular detestability was a designation of the scribes and the Pharisees. But rather than separate, separate out the tax collectors by name, Jesus lumps them in with sinners and tells them that there's salvation for them as well. So we see that the scope of the practice of the great physician is infinite and there's no one beyond his cure. So what does that mean for us? How do we reach out to the sinners and the detestable in society among us, those that we would consider detestable? If we're following the example of Christ that we see here in this text, we must go out. We will do no good sitting in the comfort of our own homes, hoping that by chance someone in need of the gospel stops by and asks us about it. Those who are unsaved and dead men walking, who have no understanding, those, yeah, those who are unsaved and are dead men walking have no understanding that they're dead. How can they know how to be saved if someone doesn't share it with them? Yes, a meal is good. Who doesn't like a warm meal in their belly? Even Jesus ate with sinners. But he didn't stop there. We must teach. If we stop at a meal and meeting only a physical need, we've completely missed the point. The body will die and all the food in the world is for naught. We must teach about sin, repentance, and salvation. We must point the way to the one who can save, not just the body, but the soul. We must call. The gospel of Jesus demands a response. One must either follow Christ or one will perish. Benign neutrality is simply not an option. Just as Levi left his tax booth, leaving the life he knew behind, so the gospel demands that the sinner leave behind their sin. Simply hearing, is not enough to save. We must follow. So what does that look like today? Are there those in society that we would say 
are detestable? Are, those that we, are there those in society that we would look at and say, they're too much of a sinner? We can't go, we can't go there. Yes, we want to share the gospel, but not with them. Who are the them of society? In 2007, there's a young woman here in Clarksville, Indiana. As, as the story that she tells goes, she was praying that God would show her how she could minister the gospel. As she tells this story, she was driving down US 31 and passed by Theater X. And she said it became crystal clear to her at that point that she was to minister to the women who were working there. Of course, she said the, her first response that she talks about was, really, you want me to go there? But after a period of prayer and fasting about how to reach them, she and some friends of hers decided to go to the club. They paid the cover charge, entered, and they approached the owner and asked, if they could come in and bring a home-cooked meal to the, to the women who work at the club. They expected that they would be shot down. But much to their astonishment, the owner gave an enthusiastic yes. So they started bringing a meal to the women who worked there every week. And they shared the gospel. From there, they've expanded. And now they have volunteers bringing meals to the women at every club in Louisville, every week. And with that meal comes the gospel of repentance. Through the ministry so far, hundreds of women have left the adult entertainment industry, and some have even returned as volunteers and are going back into the clubs sharing the gospel. The organization now is spread to Cincinnati, Reno, Nevada, Las Vegas, Nashville, Miami, Denver, Orlando, and just last year, Atlanta, Georgia. The ones that society says are the outcasts and the detestable. That surely we wouldn't go there. We're not going to sully our hands walking into such a place, even to bring them the gospel of repentance. If we simply reach out to the sinner and bring them meals or other charity out of, out of some sense of Christian obligation but we fail to share the gospel that calls them out of sin into a newness of life, we have preached a very cheap grace. We've been given something immensely valuable and saved but the grace of Christ. Saved but the grace of God. There go we.
in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this observation that cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Today, we're fighting for a costly grace. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but to deliver him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. We've been given, in Jesus Christ, we've been given the only thing that can save How much must we hate someone to withhold the only thing that can call them out of their sinfulness? The only thing that can ultimately call someone out of death into life, and we've been given that. Do we have that sense of urgency of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? Or do we often walk by saying, eh, maybe another time. We'll stop by tomorrow, if you're still there. And then we get very relieved when they're not there and we can go on our merry way. We've paid lip service. But we haven't followed through. We who were once also dead in our sin have been shown a great grace. Therefore, what we see from the, from the example of Christ in this text, that if we show the love of Christ to a lost and broken world, we must go out. We must teach. We must preach the gospel. Go out to where the people who need to hear the gospel are and preach it. But also, a decision has to be made. Follow me, Christ says. There's only two choices to follow or not follow. Sitting back and benign neutrality is simply not an option that we have. To make no choice is a choice. And we have to shed our preconceived notions about who is worthy of saving. Because if Jesus saw fit 
to associate himself with the sinner and the tax collector, the unclean and the detestable, to share the gospel of repentance. If Jesus did not consider them beyond his grace, who are we to stand in the place of Christ and consider them beyond his grace? Jesus didn't consider them beyond his grace. Why would we? And that's where we're at. Jesus ends with the question. And then the statement. Those who, have, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And we're all sick. For there's no one righteous, not even one. But we've been given a grace through the blood of Christ that allows us to boldly approach the throne of grace. And we're called to go out and share likewise. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.